Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Anti-Genocide Coffee Break, a multinational podcast. I am your host, Elisa von jürgen Forgi, and I am here with my co-host, Irena Victoria Massimino. Our technical producer is Rafi Zarzatian. You can find us on IraqProject.org and on Patreon, Spotify, and iTunes. We are very, very honored today to have with us once again Dr. Amy Beam, an, a tireless advocate for the Yazidis in northern Iraq um, and author of The Last Yazidi Genocide, the book that we discussed in our last podcast and we'll probably be discussing a bit today as well. We are also joined by one of Dr. Beam's colleagues, uh, Farhad Shamo Roto, an Azidi human rights advocate, a survivor of the 2014 Yazidi genocide, and, you know, a tireless advocate again for the survivors of the Yazidi genocide. We are very honored to have both of you with us here today, and we're looking very, very forward to our conversation with you. Thank you, Elisa. Thank you, Amy, and thank you very much, Farhad for joining us this time. It's such a pleasure, Amy, to have you back. Uh, we know you, you've been working a lot since our last time we met uh, in the podcast. And uh, well, I hope you tell us a little bit more about what you're doing. And Farhad, it's a pleasure. I will briefly uh, introduce you. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you here. And thank you so much also for accessing to be in our podcast. As my colleague and friend Elisa said, Farhan, uh, Farhad Shamoroto is an ACD human rights advocate and survivor of the 2014 genocide by ISIS. He's working as president of Voice of Yazidis, an NGO that aims at spreading awareness about the Yazidi community, the genocide they endured in 2014, their current plight, and advocates their fundamental human rights. So I'll start with you, Amy, if you can tell us a little bit about the topic we want to cover uh, this time and uh, that unfortunately for the lack of time we weren't able to cover in our previous podcast together. And that is uh, the issue of the women and the children of these women fathered by ISIS uh, during the genocide. Um, it would be great if you can uh, give us a little bit of, of uh, knowledge on that and to our audience as well. Uh, thank you, Irina and Elisa, for having me back. I'm delighted, and I hope I can come back over and over uh, so your yes. viewers get to know who I am. Absolutely. Because, because I never run down from talking about these issues. There are so many issues. Uh, in my book, The Last Yazidi Genocide, I did not set out to write a book. I'm really, I was an activist to help the survivors on the ground. But I interviewed hundreds of women, uh, female survivors, girls and women, some single, some with children, mm -hmm. in order to get them their Iraqi documents and passports so that they could have asylum in the program that was set up in Germany that took 1,100 of the survivors and their children. They took them in 2015. Uh, that program then was closed. Uh, do, it, it was limited in numbers, and that still left several thousand survivors back in the camps in Kurdistan, and also still in the hands of ISIS. There are still about 2,300 
missing in the hands of ISIS or possibly they're dead. Um, it's unknown, but that's the, the list, that's the number that we work with. Um, so in the course of getting their documents, many of them wanted to tell me their stories. It wasn't a requirement for me to help them get their passports. I was not acting as a journalist, uh, but I said, if it will help you to um, like unload the problem and tell me, I'm very happy to listen to you. And I made separate appointments to go back to listen to their stories. There were so many stories that I recorded. I had stacks of notebooks that I decided that I had to write that book because individual stories are like a leaf on a river. They just flow by you and they, they disappear. They're not recorded in history. I wanted to put these stories into a cohesive book and that's why I wrote The Last Yazidi Genocide. Half of, your, book, your book is a yeah. testimony, I think. It is a testimony. It's evidence and testimony. Half of those stories are uh, from survivors and, and other witnesses. Some people had family members killed. Um, and half of that book is analysis, connecting the dots so that people can understand the big picture of the genocide. So that's a little bit of the summary. For those view, uh, listeners who don't know about this genocide, I will say that on August 3rd, 2014, that is when ISIS attacked the homeland of Azidis. It's called Shingal. That's the Kurdish name for it, and the Arabic name is Sinjar. It's one in the same place. Sinjar city is a city that most people call it Sinjar. Shingal, the region, most people use the word Shingal. It's a little bit of a way to distinguish between the two. But it's like saying New York City in New York State. So your readers don't get confused. This region is about 150 miles long. There's a mountain in the middle of it, Mount Sinjar, and it's surrounded by flat plains where they grow wheat and barley. They are basically farmers and sheep herders. That's their main industry. Uh, though many of them work in the oil industry doing various jobs. And, uh, several thousand Azizi men worked as interpreters for the U.S. government when the military was there. So the villages that were attacked were both on the north side and the south side of the mountain. And on August 3rd, the attack came in the early morning hours and it was finished by around 2 in the afternoon and all of the Azidi population fled, either in their cars to the safety of Kurdistan to the north, or they, if they couldn't get there because the road was blocked or they didn't have a car, they walked up this very, very rugged, rocky, steep, and dangerous mountain. It, it was not easy for them, where they were stranded nine days without food and water. Uh, there was about, let's say, 360,000 or 400,000 Azidis living in Shangal, and in one day, 100% of them were displaced. It's seven years now since that, and there's many different subsets of people that we try to help. There are orphans. There are women whose husbands were killed. 
there are young boys who were captured and sent to jihadi training by ISIS. Uh, there are the older people. Uh, and, and then there are the women that ISIS captured. So this is what we want to focus on today. What happened to those women? Uh, they, they killed many of their husbands um, who didn't get away. And then they captured the women. At least 6,000 women and children were captured. Several thousand men were killed, men and teenage boys. Those women we call survivors. They really, really don't like to be called victims. So we don't use this word. We use the word survivor. And um, although Farhad, my colleague, I think of him as a survivor, uh, because every Azidi, all 400,000 are survivors of this attack. Mm -hmm. When we talk about survivors among ourselves, we're talking about the women who were kidnapped and raped by ISIS. Mm -hmm. That's what we mean by the survivors. So the Azidi culture has, uh, they only marry within their own society, and you can't change your religion to become Azidi and you don't marry outside of the Yazidi religion. If you do, you are basically um, shunned by the society. You, you can't be part of the Yazidi culture. So it's, uh, Yazidis don't want to marry out of their culture. If they were to marry someone like Muslim, because it's 99% Muslim in Iraq, uh, they would they would be cast out. Uh, and in the past, they would be cast out with, with some viciousness involved. I'm going uh, to interrupt you for a second. Yeah. That rule applies to both men and women, right? Uh, the rule of marrying within yes. uh, the Yesid. Okay. Yes. Men also marry within. Men would also uh, be shunned, but they mm -hmm. wouldn't be uh, cast out as harshly as women. Okay. In the Middle East, it's not peculiar to the Yazidi culture. It's the entire Middle East Islamic culture. Uh, a woman is expected to be a virgin when she marries. Yes. I will say that in the younger generation and in the cities in Kurdistan, um, that's loosening up a little bit, that culture. But traditionally, the culture was you had to be a virgin. And if you were raped, even if the man in your family raped you, you were still shamed. You were still cast out. Now, the Yazidis, that we can destroy the Yazidi population if we use this concept of shame. We will capture all the young girls and rape them. And there will be no more virgins of all these 6,000 we captured. And they won't be allowed to go back to their community. This is the thinking of ISIS. They'll be shamed so they can't go back. The men who were captured were forced to convert to Islam. So were the women and children. The, this was the other thing with the culture. If you change your religion, uh, for example, to Islam, you can't come back to the Yazidi religion. Azidis is an ethno-religious culture. It has both a religion and a whole culture. 
it is ethnic culture. So when this happened when, in 2014, August, by September, in one month later, the Yazidi Spiritual Council, which is uh, the organization that manages both the religion and the politics uh, and the leadership for Yazidis at that time in 2014, they met and they officially uh, issued an edict that said, we will accept back everyone from ISIS. It doesn't matter if they were raped. It doesn't matter if they were forced to change religion to uh, Islam. We know they're really still Azizis, and we know what ISIS did to them. So the word went out, uh, those who were in phone communication with the, women, the families in phone communication with their daughters or wives or sisters who were in the hands of ISIS, they told them, you're welcome back. Come back, come back, you have to come back. So then it became not a problem. Everyone, they, the families wanted them to come back. They hugged them, they cried, they did everything, and they paid a lot of money to get them back. Now, after several years, uh, not all the women came back. We come to the subset of Azidis that we want to focus on today. These were women who actually had children fathered by their ISIS captors. The, um, this is a problem for them to come back. Uh, so, the, Amy, mm -hmm. again, to make this clear for everybody, the, the women were welcome back, the women who did not have children, but this rule did not apply to the women with children, right? Is that the case? That's right. There were women who were captured with their children yes. that were from their husband before they were captured, their Azidi husband. Exactly. They were welcomed back with those Azidi children. But the young women, they were usually teenagers, actually, yes. because ISIS raped them as young as 13 and some even as young as nine. There is a case of a nine-year-old girl who was uh, saved and she was pregnant. Um, oh my God. Yeah, there's a lot of very hard cases. Mm -hmm. So uh, the women who had children born from ISIS parents, fathers, uh, there's legal issues. There's cultural issues, moral issues, and it's a very, very complicated issue. I will compare this, uh, and this issue has uh, divided opinions among the Azidi community, not just among the world, but within the Azidi community. People are severely divided on this issue. I can compare it to the issue of abortion mm -hmm. in, in, yeah. in America. Mm -hmm. this, is, this is an issue that divides the entire country. I know I have my opinion about it, and mm -hmm. I will not be swayed from my opinion. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it's a deep, deep division yeah. between people yeah. because it's it's like a red line. They said, I can't change my mind about the way I feel. Yes, it creates yes. hostility, it gets people angry and red in the face, and they have to mm -hmm. walk out of the room. They can't negotiate, they can't talk about it. It's a non-negotiable. So the, this issue of what to do with these women is non-negotiable in the minds of many Azidis. So they're not welcome back, and this mm -hmm. is the problem. We feel that the proper, it, it, it's impossible to change the mind of all the Azidis to welcome them back. It's going to be easier to find asylum for them. And mm -hmm. that's what Farhad and 
many people who want to help these women, the goal is asylum, not how, reintegration. How many women are we talking about, Amy, approximately? Uh, at this point, I want to turn this over to Farhad because yes. he's, he's an Azidi young man. When I post, one, one minute, Farhad, I say one more thing. When I posted that the these women should be welcomed back, mm-hmm. it's, it's humane to do this. Yes. I got hundreds of hate messages from mm-hmm. young Azidi men. They weren't old men. They were teenagers and men in their 20s. They were men. Interesting, yeah, men. And, and just, hey, just, just, hey, get away from us. You don't know our culture. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I know family members who were with ISIS and were returned, uh, young men, young women, their mothers, and they are missing a woman from their family. And they want their women back. They said, I don't care if she has children. I know one, in fact, she knows her sister did have two children. They Mm -hmm. took the children from her and put them in an orphanage Mm -hmm. and separated. She wants her children. I know know two Azidis who came back pregnant. They wanted nothing to do with the children. They had the children in the hospital hmm. and walked away from the hospital. They, they were teenagers. They said, I don't want to talk about those children. Um, I know women who came back pregnant and they had abortions. Yeah. Yeah. Before they gave their story to the police, the police said, you go to the hospital for a checkup the first 10 days mm-hmm. and yeah. come back in 10 days. That way, if they'd had the abortion and the police said, are you pregnant, they could say no. No. Right. Because right. abortion is not legal in Iraq. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So, um, there were women who didn't want their children because their families said, you can come back, but not your children. There are women who want their children, and so they are afraid to come back or identify as the ZD because they don't want their children taken from them. There's a wide range of responses. Yes. The there were, I was told there were two hundred children orphaned. Maybe they weren't all from this from ISIS fathers, mm. uh, but they were orphaned and they were in Mosul during the fight to take Mosul in 2017, and the government took custody of them because they had no family. Yes. They took them to Baghdad. And the uh, Ministry of, um, what's it called, Farhad, something in social affairs, the Ministry of Labor and Social Affairs. There was a woman in that ministry who took charge of these 200 children, and she was begging people to go find their mothers. We'll go to court on their behalf and they can take their children back, but we cannot manage the care of these 200 babies. They were babies. I've heard rumors that many of those babies died, starved to death. I don't know myself what happened mm. to them. Um, perhaps Farhad does. But there are families who are still looking for their women and teenage girls in their family, and they want them back with their children. So we want to help people. We want to help find them, and we want to do what they want. Mm. 
That's the main thing. What they want, we want to help them get what they want so they can get on with their life. And with that said, Farhad is nodding and nodding, and he's full of things that I know that he wants to add to this. Thank you, Amy. Yes, Farhad, thank you. I mean, I can see that, uh, I mean, the complexity of the problem, because we have what you mentioned, Amy, this individual, the individual desires and wills and and what the women want to do, and then the society on the other side, of which the majority apparently is not willing to welcome the women if they come back with the children, right? So it's a it's a rather complex scenario. I don't know if it's the majority. Mm-hmm. I won't okay. say Okay. I think the people who are not welcoming them are very vocal. Okay. That okay. Maybe they have the power. Exactly. Okay. And maybe that makes it look like they're majority. The majority. I don't know if they're the majority or not. Maybe Farhad okay. can talk about this. You can talk a little bit. Yes, thank you. Farhad, please. Uh, th- thank you very much. And, and so thank you for having me today here. Thanks, Amy, for this nice uh, opportunity also. Uh, while Amy was speaking about the genocide, how I just stepped back and remember when I was with my family and and few days before the genocide, how the the whole village and people around us turned to monster against us. My mom was was with our sheep just 500 meters from a village of Arabic called Chiri village in north of Sinjar Mountain, few kilometers from Syria border. A child from that Arabic village was telling my mom, Islamic State is coming, you are entitled, we're going to kill all of you. Wow. Imagine, this, this was a, a, voice, a, a, a testimony from a child. So that means something was planned and systematic. This mm-hmm. is what. Anyway, not going to many details, that few days we got attacks, our farms got attacks, people displaced, people got shot. And we, in the 3rd of August, we managed to to flee uh, in the middle of night by walking because all the ways were were closed. Uh, the people in the mountain said the door are closed, so come by walking, don't come by car. Mm. At that moment, me and my relatives, my we have two sisters, and one of my friends told me, he said, perhaps they start killing, they start kidnapping, they start doing everything. So, what the hell are you still there? Yeah. And they taking the only thing was harsh. They taking our girls. They they kidnapping. Mm-hmm. Uh, this this what he told me. And then our only concern was about my 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 two sister and my cousin. She was in the same age over eighteen. My mom came to me giving me a bit of black poison, saying we should give to them if we are died. They if they decide to. Suicide is better to be in the hand of ice. So this is half moment. I don't want to go to detail, but something that's impacted and changed my life. Mm. Uh, Imagine I'm holding something in my hand to kill my my sister. That's terrible. That's that's definitely terrible. We arrived to mountain and uh, and mountain was was harsh and people were without food with all the things. I started working from there taking waters. Uh, water battles from from north to south to save some people because we are speaking about 43 citizens that time. 
and then also we made some I made some campaigns with some young people we go to we cross the barrier of of fear and terror to bring some food one time we, we end up in the middle of fight two of our friends with were shoots so mm. I, I just I don't want to go back but uh, I wanted to highlight these few points mm-hmm. where I'm coming from Yes. Uh, yeah, and Farhad, did your family get out? Did your whole family get out safely eventually yeah. and survive the time on the mountain? Yeah. Good. Yeah, that's, thankfully, yeah, we are fortunately we are all safe. Uh, mm-hmm. Which sometimes we don't believe how we are safe. Yes. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so in the day in the day nine, the the, the corridor was opened uh, by Syrian Kurdish points, YPG, there is some political debate who opened that, that's not important. We managed to Syria, we managed to, to to go to Turkey border and then enter to Iraq and I stayed for three and a half year in the Hanke camp in a in a tent that was unfit for human being mm. and we, that time I was a student in, in biology uh, in university and also I was working with journalists, uh, at one point, I text Amy to tell to tell her on Messenger that I will give you some names for passport for her. <laughs> uh, maybe she even don't remember, but the group are still there. <laughs> yeah, because so uh, in all this, in all this, uh, I started working, writing, raising our voice, and at that time, I thought about. Uh, with my friends' uh, creation of voice of Ezidis, because we want to have a voice. Uh, we applied to Iraqi system to make an NGO. They didn't allow us. They said, change your name, change your objective. Anyway, um, uh, thankfully, in the end of 2017, I found an opportunity after one year of waiting for visa to France by sponsorship with my family. We arrived in France in the end of November 2017, where I started uh, in the 2019, Voice of Ezidi was established as NGO. It's an organization, as you said, advocate for the fundamental human right of, of Ezidi community and promote the rights and, and bring attention of the international community to the plight of Ezidi, to, to our plight. Voice of Ezidi focused mainly on, on, on three areas now, which is integration, supporting the asylum seekers and newcomers to France to access to service and highlight their needs and report to the, to the authorities and also on the... Uh, lobbying and advocacy, and awareness about the genocide. Also, we have a, an international network of partners. Projects are settled in couple coming in, in less than one month. We're going to light our second candle for the birth of Voice of Ezidi. Yeah, so nice. Yeah. So we are today a partner with French governmental agency and we have a project with the Feminenza organization. We are partner supported by European Commission and we are mobilizing young people in Iraq where I found that Ezidi Youth Network is a group of over 400 young Ezidi now. is the first joint Ezidi uh, community 
who they were now working in each village of Sinjar where Amy mentioned around that mountain. We have a group of young people called Youth Center of, on the name of that village. And we're doing activities. We are doing projects with partner partners. We so far built uh, 70, 67 houses for 67 homeless people. Wow. Farha, can I jump in for one second and ask you, how many Yazidis are back now in Sinjar, around Sinjar? How many have been able to leave the IDP camps? Yeah, majority are still in the IDP camp, but okay. around uh, 100,000 Yazidi, those who were, didn't, didn't manage to flee, they stayed on the top of mountain, because on the top of Sinjar mountain, we have, uh, I have a list of the family, 1,988 family are on the top of the mountain. Those people who are never left the Sinjar mm. region, they stayed, and now some people coming back uh, around, especially those people who have some opportunity. Someone working with an NGO, someone is in an army, someone having an, 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 a farm, a field, a work opportunity. For these people, also those who are in camp not coming back for many reasons. Of course, security, basic service is not there, the region is not secure. So I don't want to go deeply. I will come back to your question, Amy, and adding to the point that you mentioned about the um, children of ISIS, Yazidi survivors. I want to go back. You know, the issue is, I, according to my experience, I, I label like this. We have a legal issue. We have also we have also uh, community society norms, and we also have the uh, the religious the religious point of 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 the thing. Iraq before coming about 2014 and ISIS, what happened to children of the fighter of Al Qaeda? Mm. Before any religion, before speaking about. They're still stateless. Really? No, they are still stateless. There is no solution found. The last statistic says a Norwegian uh, Refugee Council have warned that a couple of months ago that over 45,000 people are stateless in Iraq. Majority of them are children born from rapes, so why are these stateless? Let me go to, to, the, to the point. Iraq, Iraqi 2005 is a constitution that was supervised by United Nations. In the article number two, it says nothing conductory of with Sharia, and Islam is the religion mm. of the state. This is contradictory. Contradictory. Yeah. Thanks for the correction, Amy. And she always do that, by the way. Uh, <laughs> I'm his teacher. <laughs> so, so, and also we have the Iraqi minor guardianship says no guardianship for, the first guardianship priority is for father, then grandfather. Then the court will decide. Oh, so mainly, basically, there is no possibility every child mm. from an ISIS fighter, 
is considered automatically a Muslim. A Muslim. Okay, this is one. If now Yazidi people do a campaign internationally, ask the children be raised within an Yazidi family to become Yazidi, the Iraqi law, the Iraqi society will not accept that. This is a, a primary a primary issue that we want to highlight. Wow, the second the legal thing, issue, yes. Yeah, the primary legal issue. And the second thing, community speaking. Community, in the 10th of May, this couple of days ago, mm. there was a campaign of moving 18,000 of ISIS spam, 18,000 people, women, children, from a whole camp in Hasaka region in the Iraqi-Syria border to al Jadah camp in south of Mosul to move 18,000 family. We found on the media and publicly a huge rejection from the society and everyone before Ezidi. This is one. Everyone before Ezidi. And there is a legal statement, a letter from mayor of Mosul, Najmid Jiburi, sent a letter to to Iraqi Prime Minister office and to him address him. And he say he, he mentioned just like this Mr President, we are surprised about moving this family of Daesh and family of terrorists, he said, mm. to our region, while our region, our governor region is the most affected one. You know what have even sacrificed a martyry member. So I really they say he tell to the president he really cannot guarantee their security, they will be attacked. So before Ezidi accepting or not accepting, there is today a people tell another person, a person tell another person, son of ISIS, they will kill each other. It's in a mean, a very strong insult that can lead to fight and real violence. And these children are really son of ISIS. That mm. is the reality. Even morally, by word, vocally telling people, son of ISIS could lead to violence and fighting each other, but they are really son of ISIS. But coming back to Ezidi community, Ezidi community. Uh, uh, can I jump in to clarify one thing, Farhad? Sure. The last battle to defeat ISIS in Syria was in a town called Bahruz. It was the last holdout of ISIS, and most of the ISIS men were killed or they escaped, and that left behind their wives and their children. When Farad says the families of ISIS, he's talking about their Muslim wives and Muslim okay. children, not captured ones, and okay. they were moved to a camp in northeast Syria in the area called Rojava, on the campus Al-Hol. And that at one time had 73,000 people living in it, women and children, very, very few men. The men were mostly in an area that was a prison area. They were ISIS captured. So the women continued to wear burqas, even covering their eyes, full burqas. So uh, we couldn't get into those camps to look for the Yazidi women because you couldn't see them. They're wearing mm -hmm. black yeah. from head yeah. to toe. 
And the Yazidi women were afraid to come forward and say, I'm a Yazidi. They were Yazidis. Because they didn't want their children taken from them. So ah, when Farah yeah. is talking about moving 18,000 people from that camp to Iraq, we are talking about mostly the families of ISIS fighters who were killed. And in, in, within that big population are hidden the Yazidi women with their kids. We, we don't know. We don't know where they are. Mm-hmm. That's a subset. Okay. Yeah, thank you, Amy, for, mm-hmm. for that, that piece of uh, very important. So I want to just finish my, 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 my part to, on this. Here there is, uh, there is this issue of not uh, rejecting from the law, from the community, and also now Yazidi community gets some pressure. After all what Amy said about the tragedy being in camp, thousands are still missing, a whole community is historically traumatized, each person is traumatized, and some human rights actors and, and, and international asking to find solution for such case allowing themselves to ask Azidi to to deal with this law, national international and, and regional territorial challenge are you are you mentally fine to ask a person who live in camp to deal with such case mm. uh, so this this is my concern so for me, the international community of states, especially, have not done much. And now, let me let me tell you. You know, there is over thirty thousand children are now mm-hmm. writing in a a radical extremist terror, terrorist ideologic in that camp. A whole camp. It's an independent state. They are building, and these children, these children of ISIS. Even from any mother, any we are speaking not only about Ezidi, we are speaking about might be Turkmen, Sunni, those who really joined by when joined, they were really, really wife, and including them as Amy said, hiding Ezidi survivors. Those children are now between the age, the max of them is five years old, mm-hmm. and. If the international community and human rights actors and stakeholders let this child grow up in this society. Yeah. One Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi who led ISIS. Mm-hmm. Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, who, the one who got killed, and he was the leader of Khilafat, mm-hmm. declarized it. Now we are international community waiting for 25,000 Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi mm-hmm. to be right. Yeah. What mm-hmm. are we doing? And coming back yeah. to the point, what Iraq have have done for hmm. ISIS, uh, children of Al Qaeda, mm-hmm. are now we still asking Iraq to do the same thing? I think it's something is wrong. Why mm-hmm. you do the same while they didn't find solution for those children from 2003 to today? Mm-hmm. Yes. And now you do the same routine, and this mm-hmm. is sadly because I was in a meeting in a in a in a one of the high level personality of the United Nations, sadly, he confirmed for me. He admitted that they don't have any plan for that. Wow. He was telling me in my face that uh, the few religious, religious leaders I spoke with them, they will find solution. Mm-hmm. 
Is that religious leader even he accept as a religion, let's say? Do they have a psychological support? Do they mm-hmm. have empathy for their security? Right. right. Do they have a, really a place that this, these children need to be de-radicalization system yes. to be separated, to be in an environment? So to, to conclude on this topic, today this is challenging EZD and many people are using against EZD also. And I'm mm-hmm. sorry about the hate text that Amy got and maybe anyone. Mm-hmm. But in this point, I will just make a sentence. The goodness and the true and the right path things are always silent and their voice are voiceless. We are mm-hmm. voiceless people. If you want to do a good thing, we are voiceless. But destroying things and rejecting is quite easy, you know? Uh, if yes. you build a house, Amy, you will take time, but anyone can destroy it in a few minutes. Anyway. So true. Yeah. Yes, very true. Yeah. And also, and also, yeah, I have a nice expression, Amy, for you to just accept it from an SDD <laughs> friend. Uh, I say the, the tree of the, the fruitful, beautiful fruit in the trees, people mm-hmm. go take them out to get some fruits because mm-hmm. you are... You are something great. You have something. But if your tree is empty, no one will shake you out. So shaking mm-hmm. you out, attacking you because you are doing great. So don't mm-hmm. uh, don't give up on that. <laughs> so, that's oh, nice. that's such a but sweet saying. Yeah, that's so that's nice. Very nice. <laughs> that's yeah. very nice. Yeah. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's mm-hmm. we are in a ZD cause in such issues. Mm-hmm. That is not because of, of course, Ezidi are divided, like Amy said. We had two statements in, in, in the security Ezidi Spiritual Council. The first statement say yes for everyone. Then yes. they got some, then the Iraqi law didn't accept. They said they cannot be Ezidi. They cannot be Ezidi at all. And some Ezidi also, you know, their, their, their harshness and tragedy and their ISIS and still waiting for his daughter to be survived from captivity and enslavement and bringing a child of that ISIS to his house, it's not the moment. It's not the right way. It's not even a question to ask such person to accept. What do you expect from him? Bring him at his children, bring him his his, his daughter, his his sister, his mother that's still in slavery in, in, in market sold every day. De-traumatize them, provide them psychological support, Provide them a house, take them out from a tent that it's every day. We have 100 tents at burn fire. People are losing their life in tent. People are losing their life in between Greece and Turkey. They just they just give up their lives to find mm-hmm. a solution. And you coming to ask this traumatized, this hard, difficult community living and still living in an ongoing genocide, deal with such issue that the states are not able to do the solution. Uh, This is is such an important point. One thing that um, Irene and I were in uh, IDP camps in twice in 2017, Mm -hmm. also in 2016, but most recently in 2017, in January and late April uh, 2017. And one of the things that, you know, we noticed 
Well, we met a camp administrator who was more depressed in 2017 than he was in 2016, even though it was further out. And that's because everything was declining. He had 15 international organizations working in his camp in 2016, and only three were left in 2017. They had all pulled out. Uh, the tents were getting old, but they couldn't find the right size of material to patch them. He had no medicine to care for very common diseases that could be deadly, however, if they weren't treated. Um, and he did, you know, he, he didn't even want us to come. Like, he didn't want to see us. He was so humiliated and upset by what had happened in his camp. And it was really painful to see. And then when we asked around about what services were being provided, for example, for women captives who had escaped or been rescued, there was really nothing. There was very little. Maybe some things... Um, also, you know, the de-radicalization programs we heard about were for Sunni Arab children, young men, not for Yazidi young mm -hmm. boys who had been cap captured. And it really felt to us, and, and every time we've been there, it has felt to us that the international community has, yes, as you said, expected Yazidis to do all the hard, heavy lifting, to do all of the hard work um, without any support and this has I think really that was for each me. community though I think, I think it yeah. was for each community the Christian had to do their own thing find their own money find the food find whatever the education etc so I think it was for the almost Christians all communities. Had more external backers though I feel yes. like they had more external funding and support yes. so the Yazidi but and the Shabak Shia is another small group that had nobody outside yeah. to help them right so I feel that the Yazidi so so this raises the question for me do you know and this became so clear to us when we were there that when people have survived genocide the international community needs a kind of pardon me a holistic strategy for um, for helping them reweave society, right? So this question of the children born of ISIS fathers goes to this question of, um, you know, how do we rebuild? How do how do Yazidis rebuild after this this assault that that displaced 100% of the Yazidi community from their historic homelands? It's a total assault that way, right? Um, and so it's a shame to lose anybody then. It's a shame that, to leave the children out, right? Because they, they could be more Yazidis, right, um, with them. And it's a shame for mothers to have to give up their children. And this is very mm -hmm. common, though, after genocide in the Bosnian, the Armenian. You know, this, these, were, these were problems faced by women, and they had these choiceless choices. Um, so it seems to me like, the, in a way, the international community needs to learn to have a holistic approach to survivors of genocide that helps with the, you know, we often talk about when we talk about sexualized violence, we talk about secondary and tertiary trauma. So there's the primary trauma of the woman who is the rape survivor. But then there's the secondary trauma of her children and her husband and her family members and the tertiary trauma of the entire community. And all of those, like what you're saying sounds to me like all of those perspectives need to be taken into consideration in order to come up with a workable plan for these children. And yet the Yazidis are just told, you work it out. Exactly. Am I hearing correctly? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a really, really nice way to say. And as I said, we cannot speak about one aspect because all are linked. And, mm -hmm. and, and we cannot ask one community and one society to deal. And actually, 
even in some aspect bringing the ice because ice has done horrible thing in iraq and and bringing their family or their children somehow mm -hmm. dangerous and it's really a courageous way to bring i know i know in some Yazidi family we have uh, few women went back mm -hmm. but they were from the society not only from Yazidi, but from others with one imam get back one imam and get back and make fatwa. Do you know a child of Khilafat is rising under an infidel? You know, this can put all an Yazidi in danger. So my last statement and call on this thing will be, forget having solution for this such group in not only Iraq and Syria, but in all Middle East. There is no solution for them. This is one. I can, I can, but, out of experience and knowing the community is not possible. And also, uh, please, for those who are concerned, think a bit about the tragedy of Ezidi community, mm -hmm. then ask them to, to, to deal with such issue. And yes. also, the only community who dealt so far with such issue is Ezidi. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I, had, I, have, I have a question. So. Um, that, you know, I think you answer it, but um, let me just uh, phrase it again, just in case. So you think there is no room in Iraq, in the Iraqi state? You know, you presented an issue, a constitutional issue, and definitely there has to be a modification in the constitution in order to change that. But there is no room for that. There is no international pressure that can be put to Iraq, because as I understand, there has been little international pre pressure except for the Norwegian government that maybe has asked Iraq to address, as you mentioned, this issue of the stateless children, which it's a big number, actually. It's it's quite a big number and it's not a recent problem. It's a problem that goes back to almost 20 years now. So these are no, no longer children. Some of them are adults already. And uh, so do you think there's anything that could be done in order to change that, maybe for the future? I mean, the present, yes, but also for the future? Uh, in Iraq. Yeah, this is this is a really a really a, a big and a nice interesting question. Iraq under the religious law mm -hmm. will not will not manage to solve this. Mm. So the enforcement of civil law and protection, Iraqi community, Iraqi government have again proved and admitted with Yazidi Yazidis female survivor law that they issued and they passed a couple months ago. In that survival law, there was two articles actually finding solution from the children born of rape, two mm -hmm. articles. But then the Iraqi government deleted these two articles <gasps> for some reason. So it was, for me, it's just a confirmation from Iraqi state. I cannot deal with this issue. There is no will. Mm -hmm. There is no will, and they don't want to deal. This is one. And also, who is the people, who is the Iraqi court, who is who's the Iraq? There is no deep state that we can say control. Iraq is under control of militia, of political party that that their interest is above all. Their mm -hmm. interest, their political interest is above all. So that is human rights. So for that reasons, it's not an issue. It's not, it's, there is no, also, you know, bringing them to Europe also is not, it's not a concrete solution. So for, for me, sorry, Amy, Dealing with this first putting in front of ourselves fundamental right of mm -hmm. these children 
and this woman, and then it's dealing with it in the Iraqi society and people who are working on it. Mm-hmm. It's just like lots of poison and I have to drink it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's so hard to deal with it. But mm-hmm. if I don't deal, you don't deal, other don't deal, it's quite, uh, it's quite, so I hope that there will be solution, but Iraq mm-hmm. has confirmed many times that they cannot deal. And going back, do they found solution for children of Al-Qaeda, member of 2003, 2005, 2010, 2009, they are thousands, so they can find solution now with the children of ISIS, and the number is increasing, and there is statistic about, and proof about that, there is no solution. Within them are Ezidi, and and also, it's true, like Amy said, some Ezidi do not want their children, because they are newborn, some mm-hmm. are even maybe forced by their family to leave their children. Mm-hmm. Uh, some are decided to stay. But I see, before asking these women, leave, come back, religion, find a, a stability, a yes. house, a health, yes. a food, uh, something like this, then, yes. then let all the religious person come and start with their debates mm-hmm. and stuff. But I think they're Basic right is the priority. Securizing them, to make putting them in the security should be the priority. Mm-hmm. And that priority things that I'm asking for and many each real human right personality could ask for is not available in Middle East. That's great. That's great. And and Farhad and Amy, you know, in order to guarantee the security of Yazidis in Iraq. Um, what is necessary in your minds? What you know, there's the legal issue we've talked about, but there's also kind of um, a land issue, mm-hmm. right, and a security issue in Shengal. So yeah. tell us more about that. What 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 do we need to see? Well, I am a part of. I was a part of a project, and I still need to promote that project. Is a uh, is a humanitarian and also politically we can say uh, it's called Al Rafidain region where we gather three communities together and today I had a debate with the member for for calling to an, an autonomy for minority an autonomy for minority we had three parties Trukmans Christians and different groups and Ezidis and. Oh. Uh, these 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 projects for me it is the only solution for the minority to stay and to put end of their struggle. Otherwise, uh, we find uh, a huge uh, conflict, territorial conflict, state, Iran back, Turkish back, Kurdistan regional, uh, KRG, and also central government militia back. Today, if you look to the map of the Nineveh region, and especially Shingal, you will see many flags on it. And, and if you analyze, if you analyze, there is some people called YPG, Yafasha, from the Kurdish unit. Some Hajd al-Sha'bi, Hajd al-Sha'bi, the, the Shiite uh, Shi army uh, as a... Uh, act for defeating Daesh. There is Peshmerga in Sherfadin region. There is Iraqi army. There is, and among all these militia, there is so much tension Mm. that 
any moment could bomb and their own leaders are non-Ezidi and all theirs, all the soldiers are Ezidi for a simple salary to survive. Wow. Anything wow. happened, we're going to lose thousands of young people, hundreds of young people. So they're using Ezidi for their interest. Mm-hmm. You find no leader, all their leaders and, 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 and guiding and decision coming from the top. I'm so glad, I'm so happy about Ezidi community, they still didn't find between each other. Even they pushed, they, their leaders even decided. Two years ago, uh, there was Peshmerga coming and YPG coming and and to enter Khanasur, one of the village must occupied by YPG, PKK point. And I, I saw some Ezidi left the, the, the weapon out. They said, we're not going to kill each other now. We are Ezidi, but mm-hmm. they come to the point and they meet each other and they did it. So this is something, I don't know, it's something it's still good. Uh, it's still, it still give a hope. But for me, uh, Ezidi and minority are in the same train. Mm-hmm. They are victim of the same violence, same strategic, same uh, political interest and, and, and inhuman strategies that are happening against AZD and other minority, for me, uh, having an autonomous region mm. can guarantee their stability. It's still like the issue with women. It's not, uh, it's not a concrete solution. Um, we, are not co- we are not calling for a second Israel in Middle East. <laughs> we, want to, we want to take, be, be careful here. But, you know, we, we, want, we deserve uh, uh, self-determination, yes. self-governing. Um, we are a peaceful community. Yeah. I'm sh- I, one time I said, one time I said, if ISIS didn't talk our, took our women, didn't rape and didn't enslave and kidnap our women, killing men can be very forgiven. And we were able to live with ISIS. We, we, we are a tolerance, a peaceful community. Go back to history. Please, everyone, historian, go back and see what Ezidi left behind, what leader of Ezidi left behind as a bad thing. You will mm. find nothing. Mm. Go to 19th century into Armenian genocide, you will find Hamwe Sharo with his family welcomed 20,000 Assyrian yeah. and Armenian. You come back to the after Saddam Hussein, you will find a Zidi, a Zidi house being open for, for Sunni Muslims. You come back to the 2014, you will find a Zidi open their house and heart for Shi'i Muslim. You go back to the to the Barzani movement and revolution, you will see Kurdish people were being welcomed by a Zidi in the region and supported and, and given them humanitarian support. We just left peaceful and humanitarian and harmony and coexistence action behind us. Mm-hmm. We have no, no, we have no thing left behind which is bad and can make hatred. Even that, we will not survive it from the hatred and discrimination and violence and persecution that is until today is ongoing. Yes. So for me, uh, hopefully if we had an and more attention of international community, it could not take big energy to find solution for minority such as Ezidi, Assyrian, Christian, Turkmans, all other minority. And we are geographically connected and we are day by day. Uh, in 1950, we had almost 
120,000 Jewish in Iraq. In the movement of Farhud, 111 Jews were got killed, and today we have no Jewish in Iraq. Yes. Just be working on some agency, yes. but living as a citizen, no. On their yeah. passport, on their passport, they put go without back a stamp, a specific stamp for Jewish. That's go, terrible. Go That's horrible. Back. One oh, I, I didn't hear that. What does the stamp say? I will send it to you, Amy. It's a stamp. I will send you a photo. A stamp go without having permission coming back. That is was a visa for for a Jewish. Almost anyway. like deportation. Deportation. <laughs> yeah. yeah, almost like deportation. Mm-hmm. Um, I, had, I'd like. Yeah, we had until 2005 almost two million Christian and and and, and Christian beliefs uh, believers of. Uh, in Iraq, now we have less than 200,000. We had a million, we have almost half the minority are facing extinction in Iraq. Yeah. What yeah. happened to Jewish will happen to Ezidi, yes. will happen to Christian, will happen to all other. Therefore, what we are waiting, uh, I think it could be an autonomous regional international, real international support, not just hacking. Well, <laughs> I, I, I want to tell you something about Farhad. Five years ago, he didn't speak English. What? He taught, oh, he taught himself English as a result of this genocide. Isn't it amazing? That's Farhan, amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> so now Irena and I have to get busy and teach ourselves Kurmanji. <laughs> <laughs> I hope we do as well as you. <laughs> I've given up. I'm I don't know if I can make it. I'm sorry. <laughs> Well, now we have to try. Look at what he's done. We have no excuse now. And now now he's speaking French also. I'm 14 years in Turkey and Iraq, and I have actually just given up on Kermanji because there's at least five or six different versions completely different. You know, the the quick learning, Emmy, the quick learning and and being smart from Ezidi should not surprise any one of you. You know, we are people of Sumerian civilization. We start reading and writing. So we are the the founder of the reading and writing. So should not surprise for you learning other... Of literacy. Yes, the founder of literacy. No, you're fantastic. (laughs) No, no, we are not surprised at all. It's something that we expected from you. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) But now we're embarrassed. We're embarrassed. We have not done anything. That's what it is. (laughs) I want to add a few points. Uh, I know we're running long, but I'll add a few points before we close this podcast um, about the security and autonomy. This is something called the Sinjar Agreement. It was an agreement in last September 2020 made between Erbil and uh, Baghdad, the central government, to figure out what to do with Shingal. It was rejected out of hand by everyone from Shingal, not just Azidis, because they were not invited to the negotiation table. But there is a part of it that I think is not so bad. And it's now after seven months, they're trying to implement it. And that is the 2,500 Azidis would be hired into the Iraqi police force. Um, this gives the opportunity for Azidis who are in the Azidi militia YBS and the Hashtashabi, which there's Shia Hashtashabi and there's Azidi Hashtashabi. It gives those Azidis who were born and live in Shangal the chance to change uniforms or change names, if you will, 
and officially joined the Iraqi police, even though legally and officially the Yazidi YBS and Yazidi Hashishabi are legally part of the Iraqi security forces and are paid their salaries from Baghdad central government, they're perfectly legal, they work side by side with them, um, the international media keeps up this campaign that they're terrorists, we got to get rid of them, and blah, blah, blah. So this will solve uh, a propaganda problem to get them into the Iraqi police force. And uh, the commander of Nino West, that's the whole province that includes Mosul as the capital, he uh, had a big open-air meeting with hundreds of Azidi men last week saying how that they were going to hire 2,000 and how what they had to submit in their documents to apply. So we're, we're waiting to see if they get hired. If they get hired, it's not a huge force, but it's another 2,500 Azidis who will be in the Iraqi police and can be stationed in Shingal to mm. defend themselves. As Farhad said, most soldiers are in there for their $300 a month salary because they don't have a job. When you, when I have asked the soldiers at the checkpoints, and they don't speak Kurdish because they're from South Iraq, they speak Arabic. They cannot communicate with the people who live in Shengal or the Zidis. They don't know the names of the villages. Uh, they say, point blank, they're there for the salary. If ISIS were to attack again, they would run. Just like when ISIS took control of Mosul, there was no battle in 2014. Um, anywhere between 50,000 and 70,000 military simply took their uniforms off and went home. So they would do that again, and Azidis know that. So the only security in the mind of the people who live in Shengal, the Azidis and other minorities, is that they themselves would be in the security forces. In 2014, when ISIS attacked on August 3rd, the Peshmerga ran during the night and did not let the Yazidis know they were leaving and left them defenseless to the genocide. Now, the Yazidis who were in Peshmerga from Kurdistan, they were members of Peshmerga, they were the last to leave. And I've talked to some, many of them turned right around when they got their families to safety in Kurdistan, they turned right around and took a gun, even if they weren't in Peshmerga, they got a gun and they went back to Shingal to fight Daesh. Within several weeks, there were 8,000 Azidis reformed as a new Peshmerga fighting in Shengal. So the Azidis are not asking for international soldiers on the ground. They're asking for international support to allow them to defend themselves yes. legally. And Iraqi security forces includes the army and the police. And we're really, um, I'm cautiously optimistic that these will get hired. I think the general is on the right path. He's a very good leader. Uh, that Azidis can be their own security force. Not totally. They'll be integrated with uh, the Arabs in southern Iraq. And we don't know if Peshmerga from Kurdistan will come back or not. Um, on the issue of autonomy. When you say autonomy to most people in like Turkey or the Middle East, Iraq, they have a knee-jerk reaction. They think you mean you want to be an independent country. Oh, no, 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 and it's going to be a civil war. No, no, no. They don't understand the Western concept of self-administration. Mm 
-hmm. I compare it to the United States. We have 50 states and people maybe in the Middle East don't know this. Every single state in the U.S. has its own flag, its own national uh, state song, flower, bird, tree. It has its own militia called the National Guard. It's just for their state. It licenses everything from uh, being a beautician to doctor, lawyer, dentist, taxi driver. If you get a license to be a lawyer in Ohio, you cannot take that lawyer's license and go work in any other state. You're a lawyer in Ohio. They have their own curriculum. They have their own taxes. They vote on their own governor, their own school curriculum. They are autonomous. I grew up in Ohio. I don't know anything about Texas. So why should I have a voice in how Texas runs its business? Yeah. I didn't grow up in California. California is autonomous. We have 50 autonomous states. So when Azidis say they want autonomy, they're not necessarily saying they want their own country. They're not saying that. Kurdistan has autonomy and they're part of Iraq, even though some Kurds say they're not. They are. <laughs> right. so, there is a movement to take the Shangal region and make a new province. That's the same word as state. You would have its own governor and its own consul to have self-administration, autonomy to run their own affairs that are not dealing with the national, federal affairs at the federal level. That's what Azidis want. And there is some talk, Masoud Bazani has said, maybe we can have a separate province. Last week I read, I think the, it was the president, Barham Sali said, uh, maybe that's the right solution to have mm. a separate province for the people in Shengal. It's all about political will. That's what Azidis want. They just want to be in charge of their own affairs. And not just Azidis. There were Shia, there were all yeah. kinds of minorities. The people who, that's their land in in Shengal, they should have a right to control their affairs, not be controlled by somebody sent from Baghdad who doesn't even speak their language. Exactly. exactly. And and that's that's my closing remark, Farhad. Yeah, also that to just add on that point, we lost trust someone else providing security for us. We had sixteen thousand Peshmerga, we had Iraqi army. And as Amy said, in one evening without awareing us in advance, they left us behind defenseless, hopeless, and under the mastery of, of, of just killing and, and so on genocide. You see the result. 82 mass graves and many other individual mass graves, destruction of the heritage and, and religious sites and the majority of community displaced. So how you will tell me, trust the people who yesterday abandoned you. Right. Uh, so it's uh, it's the part of the trauma of Ezidi. We still didn't get that attention and respect for other, for this willing. Uh, and also there is now, I mean, we don't, don't going so far, it's here. That's what we want, Amy. But why not? You know, why we don't have our own country one day? Do we don't deserve a country? <laughs> what? Uh, I will say I've spent 27 years as a resident of a country that has 300,000 people. 
Farad knows, it's Barbados. It's a small island in the Caribbean. They've had independence since 1967, I think, from England. And uh, we run our own affairs. We are about the size of Shingal, about 30 miles long, 20 miles wide, with 300,000 people. We have a parliament, we have our ministers, and we survive quite happily. So it's yeah. possible for, you have Monaco, you have Liechtenstein, you have, uh, you have countries that are just city countries in the world. It is possible, theoretically. Um, but I think it will never happen. I, 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 I support a, a separate province. I saw you here. I didn't hear when you said, I think it never happened. Uh, <laughs> that's why you, the, the communication stopped. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You froze up, Amy. Farad <laughs> couldn't oh, hear sorry. you. <laughs> we need our own airport. Uh, Shingle would need its own airport to have international transportation. Mm -hmm. I have been an advocate some, since 2014 when I was in the camps in Turkey that the U.S. should move its base um, from uh, Interlik in Turkey and make a base in Shingal and the Yazidis would very much welcome that base. Mm -hmm. And yeah. if they had an international airport, then it could happen, but not without that. Yeah, for, for, mm -hmm. me, for me, you know, uh, Iraqi constitution do allow Iraqi regions to, to declare autonomy or autonomy region, autonomy, mm -hmm. let me correct Autonomous, to have an autonomous region. So this is something according to Iraqi constitution, and it could be a, a, a temporary solution for, first day we get autonomous, I will make a movement about independence. <laughs> for independence. <laughs> well, those are the steps, right? <laughs> those are the maybe, steps. <laughs> maybe let's not say it out loud, just in case we hurt somebody's feelings. Just Let's just, let's just ask for it for some sort of autonomous region. <laughs> well, I think, I just think I want to add something before we finish that, um, well, thank you for having Amy. This was very clarifying. I think uh, uh, Iraqi constitution needs to be reformed. That's a, that's a statement that I'm not only saying it, I think many people know and probably the Iraqi government as well, uh, mainly because of the Sharia problem and other things that look like the constitution was just through, through things in it, and in some cases makes no sense. But I do think, uh, uh, um, Farhan and Amy, that there is there is a lot still that we can do. Besides, I think reforming the law is one of the easiest things. The problem is having the will of the governments to decide to reform the law. But we can put pressure on that, and I think the international community can also put pressure on that, and the different groups, etc., can can put pressure in order to create their different autonomous regions like like a federal state that's what you meant amy argentina is the same and many countries with bigger size because of geographic regions have federal governments in this case would be because of ethnic religious and national different identities that would make the base for the for the division of 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 the land and yet depending on a government. But I think from, from outside, there is a lot that we can still do as individual and as communities. Uh, we must not give up on whatever we can offer. In our case with Elisa, we have, you know, we have established this Iraq project, who, which aims actually at helping as much as possible from the grassroots up 
to to create uh, to for peace peaceful uh, peace oh, building and yeah, peace building and, and assistance and human security as well. This is a topic we've covered and even legal issues as well. So I think despite uh, the the difficulties that there are in Iraq and I think will continue to be probably for decades. I mean, this this is not new and it has been decades of, of long conflict in, internally in Iraq. Um, so, but I, I still think there is a lot we can do and we must put pressure on the international community and not only on governments, also on non-governmental organizations because they're key actors in today's society. You know, this rethinking borders is something that is happening a lot and it's something that unfortunately the pandemic stopped because we have strong borders now because of the pandemic, unfortunately. But I still think NGOs, we're interconnected, we communicate with each other and we can have a big network of pressure in different governments. And I think we have to pressure the Iraqi government in this sense, in the sense of giving protection, inclusion, etc. And we, you know, with our project, we aim at doing that. So we hope we can collaborate with you, Farhad and Amy, of course. Yes, so that's a great way to end, Irena. That's, that's a great call to action for NGOs to work together towards security for all of these groups in Iraq, for all Iraqis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so I want to, um, well, Farhad, actually, before we go, where can people find you? Where can they find your NGO? Well, uh, my, Do you have a website? Yes, uh, www.voiceofezidi.com. And how do you spell Ezidi in Voice of Ezidi? We spell as E-Z-I-D-I-S, Ezidis. Okay, so that's www.voiceofazidis.com. Azidis spelled E-Z-I-D-I-S. Exactly, and that is the correct how Azidi mentioned and how we are called, and it's been proved in sacred text of Azidi in mm -hmm. thousands of years ago, but now, of course, in different languages. And this is another topic of the conflict about changing the name, but we are Ezidis. <laughs> Thank you. We were told that we met some young people in 2016, and they told us that. Always spell us E-Z-I-D-I-S. They were very clear. And so Irene and I tried to do that, but sometimes when we give talks, the, the place where we're giving a talk wants to spell it Y-A-Z-I-D-I-S because they say no one will know what E-Z-I-D-I-S are, right? So, yes, it's, this is going to be a long process of changing the lexicon globally. But, but we're, we're here for it. And that's, yeah, and that's why the title of my book, The Last Yazidi Genocide, which is available on Amazon, is spelled with a Y because it's become an international standard, and if people are Googling Yazidi, I want them to find my book. Exactly. So I spell it Y-E-Z-I-D-I, -I, the last Yazidi genocide, and I know very well that the Y is inappropriate, but it's there <laughs> for the search engines. If you spell it with a Y or without a Y, you're going to find my book, and um, people can follow my public Facebook Amy L. Beam, A-M-Y-L-B like Bravo, E-A-M like Mother, Amy L. Beam. Um, please follow me and select C first. 
I have 25,000 friends and followers, and many people now send me the news so that I can broadcast it for them. I don't post everything I get, but I do um, have my finger in a lot of very critical stories. And I hope you'll have us back again because I want to talk about some of those uh, yes. legal cases that we're involved in now. Yes, actually, like last time in this interview, it has raised so many questions that that we need to we need to have you both back soon so mm -hmm. we can continue this conversation. But it's been such a lovely mm -hmm. conversation, really wonderful. Um, and we look forward to speaking uh, with both of you again soon. And Farhad, it was so lovely to meet you. And Amy, we're so happy we know you. Um, and thank, thank you both so much. Thank you, Lisa thank you. and Irina and mm -hmm. Farhad. Um, and our network continues to grow. Pay attention. Farhad is a network of 400 activists. Mm -hmm. it's, that's a very serious thing. That is indeed. Yes. Thank you so much. Wonderful. And we thank all our listeners for joining us. We will, of course, let you know when Farhad and Amy are back on with us. Um, so keep an eye out and please subscribe to our Patreon and join us on Spotify and iTunes. We will post there as well for upcoming episodes with Amy and Farhad. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you.